Before we get started, I just want to give a really big thank you. It was officially my one year anniversary on January 30th, 2022. And um, it, it has been such a good year, just like learning about everything and, and knowing that people are listening to me around the world. And um, I just really appreciate anyone and everyone who is listening. And um, I'm going to continue to try and grow this as much as I can and continue giving you episodes, hopefully every week. <laughs> and um, yep, so I just wanted to say thank you as we celebrate the one year anniversary of F-Dub History. And I do have just like one little uh, quick blurb that I want to say before we get started in that um, in the coming weeks, you might notice that I re-upload some episodes. They're not actually like complete re-uploads. Um, I'm actually re-recording some of my first episodes that I felt like the audio quality wasn't where I wanted it to be necessarily. So um, with some of them, I have done additional research or I have learned new things. Since doing those episodes, like the Connecticut Witch Trials, I've learned a lot about witch trials in the American colonies since doing my first episode. So um, some of the episodes are going to have like additional things added to them or extra information, um, or just a, a retelling of a story that I've already told. So feel free to listen to them if you want to. But I am uh, just going to be re uploading them because I'm re recording them anyway. So <laughs> without further ado, let's get started with today's episode. <music> History nerds and historians. My name is Christina and this is F-Dub History. This is where we talk about a little tip from history. It's super fucked up. My voice has apparently decided to go fly away for the night, so I apologize for that. But today is another installment of my Salem series, and it is also an observance of Black History Month. So today we are going to talk about Sarah Parker Remond wonderful woman, inspiring woman, terrible society and terrible treatment. She was treated so terribly that she moved to Europe and never returned. But before she did that, she did some amazing things while living in Salem. So sit back, relax and practice your, oh, good God, what the fuck faces. So we mentioned Sarah Parker Remond very briefly in passing when we did the Charlotte Ford episode, and I told you to stay tuned for more. So here's the more. Let's go back. Sarah Parker Remond was born on June 6th, 1826 in Salem, Massachusetts. Her father was John Remond and her mother was Nancy Lennox Remond. A little more background about her family. Her maternal grandfather was Cornelius Lennox, who was a Revolutionary War veteran. And her father was John Remond, who emigrated from Caraco. Her parents married in 1807 in Salem. She wrote that she was the youngest of 10 children and wrote fondly about her parents. She said that they loved all their children and disciplined them when needed to make them the best people they could be and that her mother taught them to find strength within themselves. But Sarah later wrote that nothing could have prepared them for what the world was like, or namely what America was like, especially towards free black people in the early to mid 19th century before the Civil War. When Sarah was old enough for school, she tried to enroll in a private school but was rejected for her race. 
And then later on, her and her siblings were accepted into Salem High School, which wasn't segregated at the time. So they thought that they were making these like awesome, progressive moves. And then their admission was revoked because the school committee was planning on opening up a new school only for people of color. So they were really disheartened, obviously. And they moved to Rhode Island, where they were hoping to find education opportunities, but were also denied there. So... In Rhode Island, they went to a school established by African Americans, but this whole situation broke Sarah's heart. She said that she felt like she was wearing Hester's Scarlet Letter, which of course is a reference to Nathaniel Hawthorne, another big name from Salem. And this really started her activism. She wrote in her autobiography that she, quote, became more and more interested in every effort made on behalf of the enslaved, and she was determined to persevere. In the 1840s, the Remans moved back to Salem, and around this time, they moved into Hamilton Hall, where they ran a catering business, hairdressing business, and were also a stop on the Underground Railroad. Now, if you come to Salem and you go on the trolley tour, they'll tell you that the key thing about Hamilton Hall is that it has a willow floor that moves up and down as uh, as the women dance so that their feet wouldn't get as tired, and it was named after... Alexander Hamilton when he died because Samuel McIntyre, who built it, admired him so much that he thought he needed to be honored. And and they leave out this whole part that this amazing Black family lived there and were literally a stop on the Underground Railroad. Sarah and her brother Charles became speakers for the abolitionist movement at a young age. She actually gave her first lecture on slavery when she was only 16 in July of 1842 at Groton, Massachusetts. Salem started becoming the center for the abolitionist movement, and the Remans hosted a lot of the most notable people like William Lloyd Garrison and Wendell Phillips. Uh, A lot of the abolitionists spoke at Lyceum Hall, which... Again, if you go on like the trolley tours and stuff like that, the claim to fame there is where Alexander Graham Bell made his first long distance phone call. But it's also where a lot of really amazing people spoke, uh, including the Remans and many others. Sarah Remond continued her education, but she taught herself. She attended concerts. She read a lot and she continued to give lectures. In 1853, she made a really amazing stride in Boston, although it was unfortunate circumstances that led to it. So Sarah had bought some tickets for her and her friends to see the opera Don Pasquale, I think is how you pronounce it. And when she got there, Sarah and the other people of color in her group were shown to the segregated section, and she refused. She paid good money for the seats that she purchased, and she wanted to be treated like everyone else. And the theater not only refused to seat her, but they kicked her out altogether and forcefully removed her from the theater, shoved her down some stairs, and she ended up getting injured. So she sued the theater for damages and restitution and made an incredibly compelling case because she won. They awarded her $500, which is equivalent to about $17,000 today. The courts also required that the theater management had to admit that they were wrong, issue a formal apology to Sarah, and officially integrate all seating at every opera going forward. And she continued to use her persuasive nature as she began touring the country in 1857 with the American Slavery Society. They traveled to places like New York, Massachusetts, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and others. She was described by her contemporaries as calm and dignified with power to wake up dormant aspirations. She traveled with abolitionist icons like Parker Pillsbury, Samuel May, Abby Kelly, and Susan B. Anthony. 
Once she finished her two-year tour in America, she was invited to speak in Britain. She wanted to go to England so badly. So she thought that she might finally experience what true freedom might be like if she went to England. So she set sail across the ocean on the ocean steamer Arabia and arrived in Liverpool in January of 1859. She attracted the attention and interest from all different kinds of people, especially the English gentlemen. Although nothing really ever came of that because she didn't get married until much later in her life. And starting a little more than a week after she arrived, she started speaking for the abolitionist cause in front of hundreds of people where she brought to light the discrimination that free people of color faced every day. But more importantly to her, the plight of the slaves and their incredible inhuman and inhumane treatment and how women who were enslaved were sexually exploited. She quoted to have said that one can infer this from the simple fact that there were an estimate of 800,000 mixed race people who were enslaved in the Southern United States. And these children would be born into slavery and then sold and separated from their mothers, possibly to hide the shame of their fathers, or because their fathers like literally just didn't care. She was brilliant. She would adjust what she said depending on where she was and who she was speaking to. If it was mostly women, she would appeal to them as women and daughters and mothers. When she was in Ireland, she compared slavery to how the working class was treated. When the Civil War broke out and Britain was concerned about their imports because they relied a lot on American textiles, she started talking about how those textiles were made by slaves and how those slaves were treated. And then once the Civil War ended, she lectured about supporting new freed people. Newspapers reported that the lecture halls were the most packed that they had ever seen when she was speaking. And she was one of the best female speakers, if not the best speaker, period, that they had ever observed. While she was touring England, Ireland, and Scotland, she gave almost 50 lectures and was surprised that in what would become the UK, she wasn't really met with nearly as much discrimination. She wrote to one of her friends that she was being received as a sister for the first time in her life by everyone, regardless of color. Sarah was brilliant, period. Not brilliant for a Black woman. She was well-spoken, period. Not well-spoken for a Black woman. People would come to see her because she was influential and inspiring, not because it was some sort of spectacle to watch her speak. People just wanted to listen to what she had to say and be a part of history. And she actually complained a little bit at one point to one of her friends that she had more invitations to lecture than she could possibly fulfill. Sarah joined the London Emancipation Committee and was one of the founding members of the Ladies London Emancipation Society, and she later became one of its executive committee members. She also stood up for women's rights and the suffrage movement. So the suffrage movement was gaining more momentum in England before it did in America. And it's believed that she is the only woman of color, period, not just black women, but the only person who wasn't white out of 1500 women who signed a petition in 1866 that requested the right for women to vote in England. While Sarah was in England, she was finally able to get equal education opportunities. She studied at Bedford College, which is now part of the University of London, where she studied multiple languages, literature, music, history, and she graduated as a nurse. Her colleagues that she worked with while she was receiving her education and after she graduated said that she was a skilled healer, but was still attentive and incredibly kind to her patients. 
She was able to travel and spent a lot of time in Italy. She was actually a really big supporter of the Italian unification, and she raised a lot of money for the cause. And in 1867, Sarah moved to Florence, Italy, and went to med school at the Santa Maria Nova Hospital. She audited the first year and then passed all of her entrance exams with flying colors and graduated in 1868 and became a doctor. She practiced for over 20 years, living in Florence and Rome. Journalists in America were even impressed and acknowledged her, saying that they felt that she had excellent prospects of employment and success. And in Italy, that's where she met her husband, Lazaro Pintor. They were married on April 25th, 1877, when she was 50 years old. He was an office worker, but later became an artist. They unsurprisingly didn't have any children due to her age. And after marriage, she continued practicing medicine until she died on December 13th, 1894 in Rome, Italy. Once she left the United States in the 1850s, she never went back. It held too much sadness for her, and she was able to live the life that she was never really able to live in the United States. And to end this very brief account of an amazing woman's life, I want to quote her. She gave a speech in 1859 when she was touring what is now the UK, and she said, quote, The just cause for which they rendered up their lives gives them immortality and their spirits walk the earth. For so great is justice that she rewards all who suffer for her with greatness. And I think that Sarah is immortal. And if we really take a moment, her spirit can be found everywhere. Especially now. America is in such strife right now, and there are people who believe ridiculously and wrongly that America needs to be made great again. And the only way to do that is to make Dixie great again, meaning to bring back antebellum society where white people are at the top. And as an American, who is a historian, who has spent a lot of time studying American history, there was never a time when this country was great for everyone. Racism and discrimination are embedded into every aspect of our society. I've actually been working on an article on critical race theory, and I've researched it quite a bit. And that is like a big part of what it says. Critical race theory gets kind of like a bad rep because people don't understand what it is. And this is my platform. And I am choosing to take a couple minutes to talk about critical race theory. And I really hope that you will continue to listen as I briefly explain it in like super simplified, oversimplified terms. So the NAACP defines critical race theory as an academic and legal framework developed by Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw. So critical race theory acknowledges and recognizes that racism is a systemic part of American society. Racism isn't just something that's found in individuals, but in institutions. It wasn't just individual bankers who were denying loans to people of color, especially black people, but it was the entire banking institution. Racism and discrimination is in historical organizations who whitewash history and erase and suppress any history of color. Here in New England, there are historical institutions who venerate and celebrate men who were involved in the slave trade, but just don't talk about it and pretend that that part of their lives didn't exist. There are historical institutions that say that they cannot possibly change the narrative and that they can't possibly add stories about people of color that may paint these celebrated white people negatively, that they have to be Meet people where they are and break the reality to patrons gently 
that people of color simply existed. And simply through their existence, they were mistreated and discriminated against and at times even attacked and murdered. Some of these historical institutions say that they have to first focus on the stories of heroes, of people of color who persevered and flourished. And I do think that it's important to tell those stories, but it's also important to just tell the truth. To tell these stories how these people of color would want their stories to be told. And I'm going to try and continue to do that. I strive to do that whenever I can, because that's what is right. And that's what should be done. And I'm not afraid of people who are too scared to change and seek the truth because like, I don't know, it may make them feel bad. Fuck your feelings. I will never feel bad for telling the truth and I will never feel bad for taking this very small platform that I have to inform people fully. And if I lose followers over this, I am sorry that you feel that way. And I hope that one day you will see the importance of telling the truth. Bye-bye. And I recognize that like, if this ever gets out and ever becomes popular, I may be ruining future relationships with historical institutions. But honestly, I don't want to be involved with any of these institutions unless they are striving to do better. And I will wholeheartedly support any of these institutions in their quest for inclusivity. But until then, here I am. As Americans, we like to say that we're number one and we're the best country in the world and that we're the land of equality. But until everyone is recognized and every story is told, we cannot be equal. That doesn't mean that we're a lost cause or that we're being overly critical of our country. James Baldwin, who was a writer and civil rights activist, said once, quote, I love America more than I love any other country in the world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. It is okay being critical. It doesn't mean that you're not patriotic or that you hate your country. It means that you're open to learning and growing. And there's always room to learn and grow. Thank you so much for listening today. If you're still here and like what you heard and want to hear more, please consider subscribing or leaving a review or joining my Patreon. If you have any stories from history or mythology or true crime prior to 1950 that you would like to hear me discuss and possibly rant about, please reach out. All of my contact information is in the description. And remember, friends, history may be watching you, so don't fuck it up. Like, really, please don't. Because we're all in this together. I don't know all the words, but I'll sing it. (laughs) Oh, high school musical reference. I'm showing my age. (laughs) Bye. Bye.